Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. Since 2016, in partnership with Academy Travel, Australian Book Review has led a number of cultural tours within Australia and abroad. Our aim is threefold, to give people a really good time, to offer readers and supporters an added service, and, in a sense, to take the magazine on the road, demonstrating its cosmopolitan interests and its extensive international connections. Next month, we're taking a party to Adelaide for the Festival and Writers' Week. Later in the year, Christopher Menz and I will lead a tour to Vienna. This is a 12-day tour based in the Austrian capital. The tour covers art and architecture, music and design. It runs from October 13 to 24, Interest is high, so if you are interested, please go to the Academy Travel website for more information or to make a booking. Hi there, this is Georgina Arnott, Assistant Editor of ABR, here to let you know that you can advertise on the ABR podcast. For publishers, arts companies, self-published authors, writing centres and others, The ABR Podcast represents a cost-effective and unique advertising platform. ABR Podcast listeners are engaged in the world of books, arts and ideas. For more information, contact us via the ABR website. The ABR Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize is one of the world's leading prizes for a new short story written in English. Since 2010, it has facilitated the creation of more than 10,000 stories that might not otherwise have been written. The prize is currently worth a total of $12,500, divided into three prizes, a boon for any writer, especially at a formative stage in their career. The Jolly Prize is open again for the 14th time. Writers have until April 24 to enter their stories. Full details appear on our website. In this week's ABR podcast, we go back to the winner of the 2013 Jolly Prize, Michelle Michaud Crawford's story, Leaving Elvis. The judges that year were Tony Birch, Terran White and Maria Takalander. For them, Leaving Elvis was a story about regret and adolescent memories with, quote, echoes of the distinctive elements of Elizabeth Jolly's own fiction, including those subterranean worlds of silence and deception. Michelle Michaud Crawford is a writer of fiction, non-fiction and poetry. She lives in Western Australia. Her debut collection, Leaving Elvis and Other Stories, was published by UWAP in 2016. Here is Michelle Michaud-Crawford with Leaving Elvis. 
Hi, my name's Michelle Michaud Crawford and I'm here to say a few words about how I came to write my short story, Leaving Elvis. Completed a decade ago, but I commenced it about eight years or so prior to that. From memory, the itch, or some of the itches if you like, that I kept scratching at as I wrote were the same preoccupations I have now, such as the um, way memory sort of works in a kind of, on the present in that kind of repetitive cyclic manner and how it feels to belong or not belong, of what home means and social connectedness and I suppose disconnectedness too. I was and I remain interested in what we don't know or can't know about people, everyday people, you know, and the everydayness of life. But the things I'm sort of most interested in are that like the impact of the hidden stories of their lives and the gaps and silences in families and the ways in which emotional inheritances echo and resonate through generations and individual family members too. Of course, I'm trying to recall all the, from the present how a different version of me came to write that story. And while I'm trying to avoid bringing what I know now or what I think I know now into that experience of the past, it also strikes me as that um, in one sense the story was written through a preoccupation with the ways in which those past lives live in us, um, in our present, no matter how much we think we've changed or grown or not. This is my story, Leaving Elvis. I walk in the door and Gren tells me that a month ago, Leslie Mulligan was taken by a shark while trying to save a stranger. Imagine, a national hero. She actually says that as though dying in a world of pain in an ocean filled with his own blood was a heroic choice. Awake for 30 hours, I'm beyond tired and probably in shock. I thought about Leslie Mulligan for much of the flight home, only managing to relax a little after deciding to look him up, get it out of my system once and for all. I'd planned what to say. I'd be nonchalant and keep it simple. I'd shake his hand and say, Hello. A lot of water under the bridge, eh? Perhaps, if it went well, in time I could reveal more. To mask any awkwardness, I ask Graham when they're erecting the statue in his memory. Maybe because I'm jet-lagged and crazy with exhaustion, I laugh when she tells me that it's already being discussed. She insists on bringing up the town website with all the proposals that have come in so far. There's to be a vote at next month's council meeting. The most preposterous design, hand-sketched, depicts him wrestling a shark. The poor creature is held in a headlock and Leslie, looking strangely like Norm from those Life Begin ads from the 70s, grins victoriously. The local artist, a Year 12 student named Russell, has apparently forgotten that the shark won that particular battle. As is her habit, Gran tells me that each time Leslie came home to visit, First alone, and then with wife number one and their children, he'd asked after me. As is mine, I wonder if she ever believed my story, but don't ask. She reminds me that she'd always talked me up, telling him, for example, that when I worked as a maid in a dotty little hotel in Dublin, I managed the hotel. More recently, she'd claimed that I was a serious writer for important European magazines. She'd first told me this while visiting me after Raymond, the one I told her was the one, left to resume life in the next village with a wife I had understood to be living on another continent. You would not believe the life I have you lead, she chortled, 
hugging me close to her chest while I sobbed and wondered why, after so many years, she still felt she had to lie about me. I noticed then, for the first time, how frail she was becoming. Previously warm and comforting, that day she felt cold, angular, sharp-edged. I realised that Graham was a shrinking woman. She played on that new frailty when she summoned me from overseas. She said that for all these years, she'd been traipsing around the less savoury parts of Australia and the wider world to see me, and now it was time to come back. She wanted to go out with a bit of dignity intact, in her own home, surrounded by her only family. We moved into this house about a kilometre from the centre of town at the start of my second year of high school. It was strange at first, being off the farm. Though we had been only five kilometres out of town, it was a different life for us both. Home was now a weird little part shop, part house that had once been a petrol station and general store. In place of paddocks and a vast garden, we had cracked bitumen and rotting wooden boards covering up the holes where they'd removed the bowsers. For a while, Gran had tried to make it nice, planting a garden in pots, but she lost interest pretty quickly and everything soon died. One good thing about living halfway up the hill like that was being able to see all the comings and goings. I entertained myself making up stories about the exploits of locals. Not that there was much activity in a quiet town on the edge of nowhere. Once the forest, there were a few large trees left between our new house and the cemetery in the centre of town. The settlers, like my great-grandfather, who had come to re-establish lives in the bush after the war, saw to that. They'd stopped fighting in other countries only to come here and start chopping down trees. Grant's theory was that they got so used to being in the trenches and bayoneting other men that they needed to keep on killing in order to feel normal. When she began trying to coerce me into coming back, Grant told me that the district was becoming increasingly fashionable with tree changes. There are quirky little retro shops and bed and breakfast spreading throughout the district. Maybe she'd forgotten that during my first years away she'd written letters filled with ideas like opening a place to sell milkshakes and souvenirs to tourists once the insurance from Grando was sorted out. She'd eventually bought the old petrol station, but I suspect much of the extra money was spent on her annual visits to see me, wherever in the world I was, around the time of my birthday. Most of the old 50s fittings are still in the shop, probably worth a small fortune on eBay, she'd said in one of her emails. Vintage is in vogue, she'd reminded me again more recently via one of our Skype calls. Maybe you can do the place up, set yourself up for the future. Then, not convinced I was listening, she'd resorted to pleading, come home. By then I'd already quit my job and booked my ticket back. By the middle of the second year of high school, Graham wanted me to stop spending so much time alone in the house with Leslie. She said it was not his fault, that he was older than me, and I was developing. I thought this was unfair. Leslie had always been welcome before, and Gran had said many times that he'd saved me from myself when everything happened with Granda. But Gran was still prone to outpourings of rage and grief, and I didn't want to antagonise her. Whenever we went back to my place after school, I would look out for Gran at the end of her shift. When I saw her car pass the cemetery turn-off, I'd shove Leslie out the back door and we'd run through the scrub to the path that met up with the road around the bend. Each time I forced him out the back door like that, I apologised. 
I hoped he believed that Graham was just miserable about the job she'd been doing to support us and now we'd moved off the farm. She'd cried every night after starting that job. People weren't even treated like real people anymore, she'd said. They sat in the dining area, some tied to chairs, drooling and decaying, while she moved around spoon-feeding the top and wiping the bottom, just like they were babies. She continued to worry all that year about the problem of my ever-growing breasts. Maybe it, while it was tending to the elderly that she came up with her solutions. You must never be in a bedroom alone with a boy. Keep yourself nice. Always remain clothed. I repeatedly broke rule number one. But in all that time alone in my bedroom, the closest Leslie and I came to breaking the others was asking Elvis about his state of dress or undress in the bathroom on the day he died. We were at Leslie's place out of town and further up the hill the day things changed. The day I stopped keeping myself nice and stripped myself down to a semi-clothed state. His bedroom was out the back. An old curvy-bodied 1950s caravan that someone had donated to the family when child number five or six came along. Plonked between the outside dunny and the sleep out for his younger brothers. It was like having his own flat, he told me. The rest of the family were out that day and it was unusually quiet without a stream of Leslie's siblings pouring in and out of the small caravan and bothering us. I pretended that this is what it would be like if I was married or had a real boyfriend instead of just reliable old brotherly Leslie. While he sat on the caravan step, I lay across the narrow bed, half-heartedly trying to finish the unauthorised but true biography of Elvis Presley. I gave a running commentary, tried to involve him. Is Elvis buried in a gilded tomb like Tutankhamun? And what did he think Lisa Marie had placed there for her dad to take into the afterlife? After a while, Leslie came into the van. I put the book on the floor and told him we'd have to ask Elvis. I said, we should go to Graceland, just the two of us, as soon as we're both done with school. He sat on the other end of the bed and started getting weird. He said there are other things than Elvis Presley, that he had been going along with all this stuff since, you know what, and it was time to move on. He started talking about how when he was out by the river, when there was nobody else around, he felt at one with the universe. He said that standing on the river bank, waiting for a fish to bite, he would feel the hairs on the back of his neck rise and wonder if it was because he was doing what he loved most, fishing. He added that after a good catch, he experienced what he thought must be true happiness. And he felt strong too, like a man. I snorted. Rolled about in a skinny little bed holding my stomach, tears soaking my cheeks, not knowing if I was laughing or crying. Then he was on the bed straddling me, tickling my ribs. His face was red and he didn't look me in the eyes. I knew what that meant. I'd been hurting his feelings since we were kids. I used to, quite perversely, enjoy making him cry. But despite what he just said to me, I wanted him to feel happy. I wanted him to feel strong. I wanted him to feel like the man he'd felt like when he was out fishing. Just like he'd been when I cried all the time after Granda died, two days before Elvis. He kept tickling me. I hated myself so much I wanted to cry, but I faked laughter. Not knowing what to say, I reached up and kissed his mouth. Our teeth banged and his nose poked my eye and made it water, but we soon worked it out. Pulling his hand off my ribs, I shoved it under my school dress and rubbed it back and forth outside of my knickers. I didn't know how much it would take to make things right again. He'd been 14 and I was about 11 the last time I'd hurt his feelings like that. 
Life was simpler then. Things had changed so much in three years. So I just let him keep going. I stared at the tin roof and bit my lip while he inched my knickers down around my knees and thrashed about on top of me, making weird sounds like he was going to be sick all over my face. Before then, I'd imagined that when I had proper sex, it would hurt. But there was nothing, really. Just his weight squashing the breath out of me in a mix of warmth and dull scrapey tugging at my insides. Afterwards, I was embarrassed because I didn't bleed everywhere like I thought I should have. I lay there for a bit, not knowing what to say or feel. Noticing it was getting dark, careful to keep my eyes averted, I tidied myself up, repacked my school bag and left him lying there, staring at the roof with a weird off-centre grin on his face. Though smaller and shabbier than I recall, my old room is spotless, with new bedding and curtains and a reading lamp on top of a pile of books. There are stickers on the spines of two of them. I must have neglected to return them to the library when, having served beer to enough locals to save an interstate fare, I fled. What if I were to return them now? The loneliness, the long-distance runner, and I never promised you a rose garden. Bleakness and madness restored to their rightful place. I kneel on the floor beside my bed and, reaching beneath the metal frame with my right arm, sweep my fingertips across the lino. Extending them towards the wall, my shoulder pushes against the old bed frame. It isn't there. How strange that Grand should retain the books, but not that. Then I remember disposing of the border after our last meeting at his place. Knowing we'd reached an impasse, I'd stormed out, traipsed along the creek bed and dumped it among the wrecked fridges and decomposing animals, hoping that he'd see it and come back. Exhausted as I am, I know I will not sleep until it's night time in the Northern Hemisphere. I pad back to the lounge room and press the button on Grand's old computer. Computer's slow to boot up but fast enough for my techno-savvy Grand to stay connected with me in recent years. I log on to my webmail. There's nothing from Raymond. I wasn't expecting anything, not really. I email him anyway. I'm here, safe. And don't sign it. I check my bank balance. If I'm to be working from home and caring for Gran, I'll need a new computer, a laptop for privacy's sake. In recent years, stories written under various pseudonyms in True Confessions and Lonely Hearts have been my bread and butter. Inevitably, I revisit the website. Apparently, as well as being a national hero, Leslie Mulligan was a well-respected local boy. Though he left the town when he was 17, he came back regularly to visit his family for the first two decades. Less frequently as his fishing fleet took him away for extended periods. The website also states that Leslie Mulligan had always planned to sell his fleet of fishing boats and come back to live in the town where he grew up. That story must have been invented by someone at the council. Grand told me years ago that once his mother died, Leslie had never returned to the town. Leslie avoided me at school for a few weeks and stopped going altogether. One Sunday, after a few more weeks had passed, he came to see me when Graham was at work. Could we go for a walk down by the creek? We walked along, close but not touching, hands in our pockets, my eyes straight ahead. We reached the usual spot on the outskirts of town, beyond the old abattoir littered with car bodies and old fridges, and sat there, unspeaking, on the rotting vinyl car seats that had been put into the tray of an old ute. He was leaving, he said going up north to work on the trawlers out of Geraldton. 
I looked at an old bone sticking out of the brown sludge in the creek. Since we were little kids and I'd first started tagging along behind him, I'd assume there were animal bones from the old abattoir that popped out of the mud in different places along the creek's course. Maybe they aren't animals after all, I'd said. Do you remember I asked then, and when I was little, Grandy used to pay you to look after me when he was in town, so I could drink at the RSL? He said he was sorry, but he didn't want to like me in that way, and he was sorry for acting like he did. It was illegal what he'd done. My grand would string him up for behaving that way. And my granddad, well, he'd have killed him with his bare hands if he knew. He had to leave. We could be friends still, maybe, when he came back from fishing. I said I was late, and I wouldn't tell Grant it was him. He wouldn't go to jail. It can't be mine, he said. Everyone knows it can't happen the first time. A week or so later, he waited for me outside the school gate. He wanted to talk. He said we could go north together, stay with his auntie. We could get special permission to be together. He'd asked you around and sometimes you could do that. I said I'd made a mistake and it wouldn't have been his anyway. And he seemed ready enough to accept this as true. His smile was the biggest I'd seen on him for a long time. I thought maybe if I wished for it hard enough, things would go back to how they were before. I asked him to come back and see if Elvis was about. I'd made new letters to commemorate the fact that it was nearly a year since his death and said that I had a feeling that today Elvis might have a message for us from Grenda. But he said he had things to do, that he was getting too old to be messing about talking to ghosts. He said I should move on. Maybe he'd see me another day. We could still go north, I said. But I was facing the back of his head. He was walking away and I knew that we'd reached the ending. Two days before I went into labour, I floated in the bath, observing from above my grossly distended form lolling in the bathtub. Water sloshed over the sides and soaked the bath mat. The bath was not large and my knees were bent up into the position the midwife told me I would use to deliver. My breasts were huge, blue vein tracks leading to nipples sitting atop like spotlights on a rear shooter's four-wheel drive. I touched my nipple and was shocked to experience a tugging sensation right through to my distorted belly button. I pinched my nipple tight and pulled hard, pretending to be a baby, sucking and stretching, trying to extract milk. I touched my stomach, hugged my huge gut and smiled at the face in the mirror, serenely and smugly, like I'd seen adult pregnant women do. Sinking lower into the water, I traced my fingers past the squiggling lump of baby and down between my legs. I hooked one leg over the bath edge and touched the hole where the baby would push through, circling slowly and then pressing hard against it. The throbbing ache in my stomach had grown and become so much a part of me I'd just about forgotten what it felt like not to be constantly aware of weight pushing against my body. Horrified, I discovered I could only fit three fingers halfway into my vagina. How would I stretch and avoid being slashed open? I screamed for my groaner came rushing in to hoist me from the bath. She was strong enough to lift decaying old people from the bath, but not me. Clinging to my wet naked body, she pulled me to her chest, rocking me back and forth and shushing me. I was unable to cry, terrified that I'd rip apart and that she would have to drag the pieces of me down the end of the driveway to the car and take me away, down the hill and through town for everyone to see. It has been nearly one year since Gran made what she determined her final overseas trip to see me. She was glad, she'd said, that I'd forced her to see the three continents she'd never have seen otherwise. 
but she was done, too old to keep tootling off overseas. For the past two months, Grain has reminded me via Skype to ask the internet about the goings-on in the political world. She's embarrassed, she said, possibly more times than she recalls, about what's going on. Earlier tonight, she reminded me that I must learn about the horseless men and the unspeakable things they are doing to the first woman other than the Queen to ever rule us. Then she stunned me. In all those trips, we'd never discussed them, those ghosts that accompanied me into every room in every town and country I ever fled to. If it weren't for your grandad and what he did to us, maybe I wouldn't have found you and the baby. And Leslie... Then, excusing herself, she pulled herself up on her walker frame and took herself to bed. The night she was born, they took her away to the nursery. I lay there and wondered about Leslie. I pictured him, sorting pots on the big fishing boat, throwing the ones he didn't want overboard, finishing work and walking around Geraldton, alone, missing me and not even knowing he was a dad. I thought maybe I could go up there on the bus with the baby. I'd explain to him the story I'd invented the stranger at the train station who looked a bit like Elvis Presley. I fell asleep, waking a short while later to the sound of whispering. Opening my eyes to a slit, I peeked across the room. My gran and the matron sat together. Matron covered my gran's hand with hers. I closed my eyes and pretended to sleep while gran wept. Until I got myself pregnant to that stranger I'd just met and shamed her, I'd never seen her cry like that. Not when my mum dumped me and said she wasn't coming back. Not when I told her about Grandad dressed in his old army uniform and hanging from an apple tree up the back just two days before Elvis fell down and died in his own bathroom. The next night, a nurse came to my bedside. They'd moved me into a tiny corner room tucked out of sight from the main ward. Curled in a ball, my face towards the wall, staring at the emergency bell, I wondered if being sad constituted an emergency. I rolled over to see the nurse standing next to me, the baby in her arms. My breasts charged with milk and tingled as she pressed the baby to my chest. The nurse walked out of the room, leaving her in my arms, her rosebud mouth nuzzling into my nightie, seeking the nourishment I wasn't supposed to allow her. When the nurse returned to take her away, I wanted to thank her, but nothing came out. She looked down at the baby I'd privately named Lisa Marie, stroked a tiny faucet's bruised face and lifted her from my arms. I doodle around the edges of my boarding pass. Boxed-in houses give way to hearts and flowers with slightly evil grinning faces. I draw a stick band with a cape and an Elvis quiff and snarl. I wonder if Leslie had been happy at any point in his adult life, with all those fish, all those ex-wives and children. I sketch an oversized pedestal for the stick man to stand on. I decide I wouldn't have looked him up and said hello, nonchalantly or otherwise, had he still been alive. It took 33 years to return for good, but my guilt and shame remained too complex. I write, you'd have made a great dad to Lisa Marie, where the plaque would sit. Then scribble it out so the pen pushes through the paper and stains the computer table with a blue blob. The internet tells me that while I was still in the air earlier today, a leadership spill was called, but no one challenged the Prime Minister. The events, led presumably by Grand's infamous horseless men, overshadowed the national apology. 
It takes a while to understand the significance of the occasion and to understand why people were upset by the shenanigans in Canberra. I listen over and over again to the clip I linked to on the ABC News. I scan the faces in the crowd just in case I see her. But of course the Prime Minister isn't speaking to me. I wasn't actually forced to do anything. And though I've never stopped looking, according to the records I tracked down in the mid-90s, my baby died when she was six months old, before I even started running. They came with the papers, the final warning. Face to the wall, I reached behind me for a hand, but Gran had already left the room. The matron stood beside me, one hand on my shoulder. Yes, father unknown, I confirmed. It's best this way for all concerned, she'd said pointedly. I refused to look up as I reached for the pen. Printing my name in tight letters, I drew a tiny little heart with a dot above the eye belonged on my name. I cried and didn't care if I shattered into a thousand shards. I rolled over and saw a brittle woman in a beige suit take the papers from Matron and shove them into a suitcase, locking it before nodding at me. I said I needed to speak to someone, that it was important, and began to sit up. But the tight-faced woman had gone with my signed paper in a briefcase and Graham was outside waiting to take me back home, to tuck me up on the good couch in the lounge room with my old holly-hobby bedspread, waiting to kiss me and say, you and me, we're all we've got now, before she had to go off again and feed and wipe faces and bums. Graham calls out my name. Do you need more blankets? She says there's Horlicks in the cupboard. She hasn't been asleep after all. I recall those few months I worked alongside her in the nursing home, the more lucid of the elderly claiming not to sleep, ever. Tell her I'm fine, that I'm going to bed now. I stand by her door and add that I'm glad to be home. Pressing the button on my phone to light up the screen, I peek in at her. Good night, Gren. I didn't look as the officious woman and a nurse wheeled Lisa Marie down the corridor and away for the last time, but I could sense the gap stretching between us sensed her disappearing further and further from my reach. One of the wheels on the plastic hospital bassinet squeaked 33 times, each more quietly than the last, until I couldn't count anymore. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.